Well, hey guys, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, welcome. We love technical difficulties, as you see. So here we got Christian fixing the TV for us. Anyway, if it's your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor, and we are in this series called The More You Know. Um, the way we kind of got this idea is, uh, you know, here's the deal. People have come up to me in ministry, and they say, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, or maybe I'm, I'm new to the faith. What am I supposed to believe about this particular issue, this particular aspect? I've been asked about it, or I'm confused. Can you help me get a little clarification on this particular issue? Week one, we talked about whether the Bible is reliable or not. Uh, Last week, we talked about creation. We talked about Adam and Eve. But the truth is this. At some point in your life, someone is going to ask you about your faith. Oh, it's nice and working now. Great. Someone is going to ask you about not just the faith, but your faith. What do you specifically, as my friend or as a family member, what do you believe about this kind of a thing? The question is, will you be prepared to answer them? Because I think we actually have a responsibility to know what we believe. And I believe that to be the case because of what Peter said in his letter, which Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus. And he says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, specifically, Peter's talking about this idea that if someone asks you why you believe in Jesus or why you've said yes to Jesus, you need to be ready to answer that question. And my goal for this series is to help you not only be able to answer that question, but to answer all the questions you may get about some of the major topics in our faith. So whether someone's challenging you or whether someone just simply wants to know more about what you believe, Peter says, but do this. Do it with gentleness and do it with respect, okay? Because when you look at Jesus, and and he always shared the truth, he never tried to ram his opinions or his beliefs down someone else's throat. He was very genteel about it. And we need to take our, you know, our pattern from him. Be gentle, be respectful. So when I was prepping for this series, uh, I was trying to get an idea of what what topics we should hit. What are some issues you guys struggle with? And and so I asked a bunch of you, I said, well, tell me, what what would you like to learn more about? What are some things that you struggle with? What are some things that you get asked about? And today's message, I have to be honest with you, this was an overwhelming one. People said, this is something that I'm wondering about. This is something, can you give me more information about? What are we supposed to believe about Satan? What are we supposed to believe about him? Who is that guy? Now, what's interesting is that, so this week, I, um, I spent some time just Googling what are some other churches in the area, how have they done sermons on Satan, or, or, or nationally? What are some of the big guys? What have they done on Satan? Because I wanted to, it's a big topic, and I wanted to get some parameters. I, I had to kind of, you know, couch this discussion. And what's interesting is that I didn't find any sermons on Satan. I mean, certainly we all mention him at some point, but I just couldn't find any particular message like I wanted to do on him. And so for today, what I'm going to walk you through is one of a kind. Now, what's interesting is right after last message, someone ran up to me and she goes, you're not going to believe this. On the way into church this morning, I was listening to Calvary, uh, another church in the area. They are doing a message on Satan today as well. So that just tells me, The Holy Spirit's working, and he just wants Fort Lauderdale to have a good idea about who Satan is. Because, I I mean, what are the chances, okay? What are the chances? 
So when we're talking about Satan, I think that many of us get our idea, our impression, an image of Satan based on art. And we've been painting pictures of Satan since the beginning, but, you know, the Renaissance, they took their chance, and here's kind of what they're doing. You've got little demons, different colors with wings and horns and bats and clubs, and they're beating up what looks like perhaps a saint. Eventually, Hollywood, they took over. They give us this picture. That's frightening. I think it's actually from the movie Legend back in the 80s. I never saw it, but that's a pretty interesting-looking picture. And then, of course, my favorite TV show of all time, they took over, they did their, you know, their take on it, and you got David Putty, the face painter. Okay, the devil, Satan, right? This is it. We're the devils, okay? Big New Jersey devil fan. The reality is that while art and Hollywood do portray, at times, a very terrifying image of who Satan is, I think that the Bible and the Scripture really portray an image that's truly, truly uh, concerning. Really, really concerning. So for the goal for today, okay, my goal today is I want to tell you the story of Satan from beginning to end. I want to talk to you about who this individual is, what is going on with him. And at the end, I want to expose his mission for this world and for your life. So I want to quote my dad here. My dad, uh, while he's an attorney by trade, he runs a couple of large Bible studies over in Naples. And he says this one thing all the time. He goes, hey, your Bible's going to get a workout today. It's going to get a workout. Here's what he means. He's going to use a lot of verses, and he does. And today, I am going to use more scripture on this stage than we have ever done before in the history of this church. The reason I'm going to do that is because in the Bible, there is this scene where Jesus is in the desert, and he's going one-on-one with Satan. And in this experience, Jesus uses Scripture to combat Satan. He shows us the pattern that we need to use when we're dealing with Satan. So folks, for my money, when we're dealing with a topic like this, when we're talking about someone like Satan, who is a very specific individual, I want to make sure that I follow Jesus' lead and use Scripture to have this conversation. I want Scripture to make the argument. I want Scripture to make the points. I want Scripture to tell the story. And I want to do as few anecdotes, as few teaching moments as possible, and I want to let the Scripture do the work. So the first question I think is very interesting that we should talk about is, what is his name? So you're like, well, isn't it Satan? I mean, you've been saying Satan all along. Isn't that his name? Duh. Interestingly enough, we don't really know. We don't really know. Now, I first learned this when I was at seminary many, many years ago, and it came back to my mind, this idea that we don't really actually know Satan's name. And I wanted to make sure, I, I wanted to teach you about it, but I wanted to make sure that I had it right. And so on Monday, and he may be watching right now, on Monday I was communicating with the president of Knox Seminary, and I was asking him about this. And I said, do I have this right? Can you give me some insight so I, so I can teach these folks the right thing? And so here's what you need to understand. And it's a little complicated, but not really. The name Satan is actually a description of what he does rather than a proper noun. Let me say it a different way. Satan, the name that we now call him, isn't actually a name at all. It's a description of an activity. The word Satan that we use comes from the Hebrew word ha-satan, which means the accuser. It was a word. And the reason we call him Satan is because this is his chief description throughout the scriptures. He is God's chief adversary. And what he does is he accuses God, he accuses Jesus, most importantly, he accuses us. 
And because this is what he does, that description has now become his name. It's like calling Dwayne Johnson the rock, right? We just call him Satan. That's what he does. And once you begin to understand that Satan is a description and not a name, you begin to see that all throughout Scripture, this being is a man of description. They talk about him like the great dragon or the adversary, a murderer, the evil one, father of lies, God of this world, the tempter, and the devil. And these are just a handful of his descriptions. There are many, many more. He is a being of description. But for our purposes and for your purposes, Jesus and the New Testament authors, they refer to him as Satan. And so shall we. That is the name that we will use. That is the name that the New Testament authors have chosen. So that's what we are going with. So the next question is this. What was he? What was he? Because he wasn't always Satan. He wasn't always the evil one or the tempter or the devil. See, you have to understand that first and foremost, he is a created being. He is a created being. So when you have God and you have Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, they are not creative beings. They have always been in existence, having never been created. How does that work? I don't know. Nobody knows. It's just one of those things that we just will not fully understand because we have a finite mind, and it's hard to understand these concepts at an infinite level. But he's a created being. And we are told that Satan is a type of angel called a cherub. Now, the Bible speaks about this idea that there are several different categories of angels. We have archangels, which is like Michael and Gabriel. You've probably heard those names. We have cherubs. We have seraphim. And there's some other names that are in there that we don't need to get into. But when you hear the word cherub, I think a lot of us think of a little chubby kid with an arrow on a Valentine's Day card. And you're like, oh, that's cute. That's really cute. I didn't realize, you know, that, that's cute. But when you read a description of a cherub in the Bible, I'm not going to say that it's a frightening description, but it's pretty intense. And it looks nothing like a fat kid with an arrow shooting at a heart. Not even close. But cherubs are in existence today. And they have a job. And the reason God created them and gave them a job is that their job is to serve God and defend his holiness from any defilement of sin. Now, you're probably hearing this and you're saying, wait, 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 hold on. Let's see if I got this right. You're telling me that Satan, the devil, was an angel. And that he not only was an angel, but he was a cherub. And he was created to defend God's holiness and protect from the defilement of sin. Is that what you're trying to make me believe? Well, that's what the Bible says. That's how the Bible describes who Satan was in the beginning. And I can go a step further than that, because God himself actually describes what Satan was like when he was in heaven. And it's in Ezekiel. And this is God talking about Satan, mind you. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty you were in Eden, we talked about that last week, the garden of God. He goes on. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, all beautifully crafted for you, and set in the finest gold. And they were given to you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. So this last line is very interesting. Because I think probably 99% of us 
read right past this and don't really know what's going on. Because God says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Well, what does that mean? I asked Christina, I asked Sarah, who's running the slides this week because we were practicing, and I said, do you guys know what this means? And they go, no, I have no idea. I think most of us don't. So have you seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Laters of the Lost Ark? Fantastic movie. When I was a kid, I had a whip, just like Indiana. I was like whipping everything. Fantastic. I was using it in the house one time, and I whipped it and ripped the wallpaper on the walls. Okay. Here's a picture from it. This is when Indiana Jones, and I forgot what his buddy's name was, finally get their hands on the Ark of the Covenant. This is what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. The Bible's very descriptive as to what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. And amazingly, this film got it perfectly. Here's an up-close picture of what the Ark looks like. This is not the actual Ark that's been lost. This is like from a museum in, I don't know, Akron, Ohio or something. But just let me give you a description of what the Ark of the Covenant is, because I, I think a lot of us just don't really know. God told the ancient Israelites to create, to build the Ark of the Covenant. It was essentially a box, but it represented God's physical presence in this world. And they would take this box with them wherever they went. Inside the box were the Ten Commandments, and there's a couple of other important ancient artifacts. But the really important part about this ark is this lid, okay? This lid is an earthly mirror, a perfect representation of what God's throne looks like in heaven. This is what God's throne looks like in heaven. And this middle section here is actually called the mercy seat. It's not that important to know that today. But this is where God would sit. This is where God's spirit would come down to rest. Now, here's the important part. In heaven, as on this box, God's throne is covered by two cherubim. They stretch their wings out over God's throne. So when God says to Satan, you were the anointed cherub who covers, he is saying you were one of these, that you were so perfect, you were so good that I used you to outstretch your wings over my throne. That's how close Satan was to God, that every single day, every single moment, he outstretched his wings, like we see in this picture, over God's throne. God continues. He says, Satan, you were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. So what happened? I mean, how do you go from the model of perfection to the father of lies? I mean, that's how Jesus describes it. How, what, what happened? What took place to bring you down? Now, we actually have the story of what happened. And it takes place in Isaiah. And this is God telling us this story about Satan. He says this, how you have fallen from heaven, he's talking to Satan, morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. Continues, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most God, high God. You see, you ask the question, well, what happened? How did this anointed cherub of perfection who covers the throne of God, how did he go from that to Satan, the accuser, the devil, 
the evil one. What happened? Two words. I will. These two words took Satan down. These two simple words were the ruination of this created, perfect being. See, what I believe is that from before creation, not just that, but before creation until this very day, pride is at the center and the core of every single sin. Every single thing that we fall to, I believe pride is at the core of it. I would say this way. I think pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's this idea that we look at life and we say, I know best. I got it covered. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need the crutch of religion. I don't need God. I, I, I. And it's what got Satan. This pride, this I will, and eventually, as he had his wings outstretched over that throne for so many years, who knows how long, eventually, Satan led a revolt. He led a revolt with the hopes of becoming God. That's what he wanted. That is what he wanted in his heart. And he talked to the other angels. The Bible says a third of them. And they got in his side. And they started a revolt. And we have the narrative of this revolt what I'm going to read you sounds like a scene out of Game of Thrones. It really does. But this is what happened. And we read about this in the book of Revelations. It says this. Then there was a war in heaven. And Michael, who was an archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. It goes on. This great dragon... The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels. Like I said, that's about a third of the angels in heaven fell with him. Now, Jesus was there. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus saw this take place, and he said to his disciples, he goes, guys, 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 I was there. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And it was a cataclysmic event. And it rocked heaven. And it rocked this world. And everything changed, particularly about Satan. Because that's when everything started to change for him. So the question is, what happened afterwards? Who is he now? Who is he in the New Testament who is he in 2018, in this country, in this state, in the city of Fort Lauderdale? Why does God have, have two churches talking about it simultaneously on the same day? Why is this happening? So I believe that art and literature and film have led us to believe that Satan is just a metaphor for evil. That, that we are, as humans are trying to figure out why bad things happen. And so what we've done is we've tried to personify evil and say, well... It's just this, this individual called Satan. He's to blame for why bad things are happening, right? That he doesn't really exist. He's just a concept. Is that really an individual? There's not really a, a person or a created being called Satan. He's just an idea. Have you ever seen the movie The Usual Suspects? Great film. Fantastic. Great film. So if you haven't, it's probably on Netflix. If it's not, Adam, the guy who was doing the announcements, he, by the way, he buys pretty much every film made on iTunes. Like the other week, he goes, hey, John, just picked up Steel Magnolias. What are you buying that movie for? Okay, what, like literally. He, he, and he knows that like at this point, it's like a joke what he buys. 
He's like, oh, I picked up Red, you know, Hunt for the Red October. Why are you buying these movies? Like those movies that USA plays at 2 p.m. on a Saturday, <laughs> the ones that like you watch like, you know, five minutes of, and you're like, yeah, I saw this 30. He's buying them. Anyway, there's a quote in The Usual Suspects, and I just believe it is so fitting for today's message. One of the main characters says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If you told me this was a line out of scripture, I'd go, amen, brother. That's Mar- Matthew, right? right? It's just, it's so, it's so true. I mean, this movie has perfectly nailed who Satan is. He doesn't want you to think he's real. But the truth is, he is all too real. And so is his hatred. He hates you. And he hates God. And he hates Jesus. Hates him. I'm going to tell you a couple of things that might sound wacky to you if you are new to church. Just, but this is the truth, and we, and we have to have a conversation about this because this is what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us that our world is surrounded by and, and, and impacted by an unseen world. We, we, we may not understand that, okay? But 100 years ago, people didn't understand that you couldn't see germs, and yet they had an impact on our lives. The fact of the matter is this. All around us, Jesus tells us, the other disciples tell us, that we are surrounded by angels, we are surrounded by Satan and his minions and his demons, and there are wars going on all around us that we have no idea. And I'm thankful for that, because I have a feeling if God ever pulled back the curtain, we would be terrified if we saw what was happening around us. But Jesus gives us some very specific insight into this world that we can't see. Some very specific insight, particularly into Satan's role on this earth. Now listen carefully what Jesus is saying here. He's talking to his disciples, he's talking to a group surrounding him, and he's saying this, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world, he's calling Satan the prince of this world, is coming. He's coming. But he has no hold over me. You see, Jesus understood that this world that we live in is Satan's domain. Jesus says he is the prince of this world. We are living in, we are standing on, we are working in Satan's domain. We get a greater perspective of what this domain looks like when Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Take a look at this account in Luke. The devil led him, that's Jesus, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will, there's the old I will again, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Now, interestingly enough, some people read this and say Satan was lying here. Satan was not lying here. Jesus did not refute what Satan said here. This is the truth, folks. See, we need to understand that we live in a world that is under the influence of Satan. Everything, he's got his hands in, and he's trying to mess up. So if it's true what Jesus says, and it is because Jesus said it, that Satan is the prince of this world, if it is true what the other New Testament authors say when they call him God of this world, if that is in fact the case, what is his agenda for this world? What is he looking to do in this world? 
What is he looking to do in your life? Well, it's simple. He's looking to devour humans and destroy the work of God. This is what he wants to do. This is what his aim is. This is what his sole purpose is on this earth. Peter, we talked about him in the beginning. He says this, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy. He's talking to you guys, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this is important to understand because he is out to destroy every single person, not just Christians. He wants to destroy everyone, not just Christians. Christians. How does he do it? Well, his chief method of destruction is deception. This is what he does. He's a liar by trade. This is what he does. Jesus talks about him in a very interesting way, particularly about deception. Jesus says this, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And I love this next line. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, let me say a couple of things here. Yes, he is the ruler of this world. Yes, he is the God of this world, as the New Testament authors say. Yes, as Jesus says, he is the prince of this world. But his power is limited. Because while he may be the prince of this world, we know that God is the king of this world and the king of this universe. And here's something very important to understand. If you are a Christian, if you have said yes to Jesus, Satan cannot physically touch you unless he asks for permission first. Before we get too happy, before we let our guards down, you need to understand, Satan doesn't need to touch us because he can get us to destroy ourselves. He doesn't need to lay a hand on a Christian, or anybody for that matter, because he can get us to destroy ourselves. How does he do it? Temptation. And this looks different for everybody. It could be, hey, take that next drink. Not a problem. You can handle it. Nothing's going to happen. Enjoy yourself. Those pills, it's not an issue. You're just taking the edge off. Nothing's going to happen. You won't lose the job. Go ahead. The old girlfriend texted you and you're married? Well, she's just saying hello. You can respond back. It's not a problem. But it's a trap, folks. He lures you in because what he does is he offers you a cheap counterfeit of what you truly want. And there's always a catch. He's going to show you something you want, and you're going to look at it, and you go, this is exactly what I want. But when you look closely, you realize that this is not exactly what you thought you wanted. It's just the truth, but twisted just enough. Just enough to grab you. Just enough to ruin you. Now, Satan used this tactic on Jesus himself. And let me show you where this happened. This is, again, in the passage we read. He says to him, look, Jesus, I will give you all the world, all the authority in this world, the splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. Here's the deal. Jesus came to this world to become the ruler of this world. That's why he came. The scripture says that at some point in the future, every knee in this world shall bend to the name of Jesus. Jesus. 
Satan knows this. Satan says to Jesus, I can make that happen. I can make, right now, every knee in this world bend to your name. I can give you the authority in this world. It's mine. I can give it to you. See, what you don't understand is that what Satan was trying to do right there, he was trying to tempt Jesus into bypassing the cross, leaving us to die in our sins. What he was looking to do in that moment was to destroy God's work of redemption because Satan knew if he can get Jesus to say yes, to take this offer, that Jesus wouldn't go to the cross, God's redemption wouldn't happen, and every single human would die in their sins. He was looking to destroy the work of God. But Jesus, he's a smart guy, and he knew that while this was an offer, it was a cheap counterfeit. It wasn't the whole truth, okay? And Jesus didn't, didn't partake of it, right? Didn't bite the fruit, so to speak. He finished his mission on this earth. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave, conquering death. And as he left this world, he said one last thing, and he was talking to his disciples, but folks, I believe he was talking right to Satan when he said these words. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's saying, you offered me earth? Oh, I got that, and I got heaven too. I got it all. He conquered it. He won. Now, if you've checked out, check back in. Because what I want to talk about next, I want to wrap up, but this is the most important thing we can hear. Because we need to talk about Satan's greatest victory. Because he's got one. So what was it? So last week when we were talking about the Garden of Eden, I mentioned the fact that in the Garden of Eden, Satan made his first debut, so to speak, on this earth. And he went to Eve, and he said to Eve, let me ask you a question. I saw God was talking to you about that fruit over there. What did he say about the fruit over there? And she said, well, he told me that if I ate it or touched it, that I would surely die. And Satan says to her, you won't die. You're not going to die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. Here's how Satan works. Satan knew that he was thrown out of heaven for wanting to be like God. That's, what's got, that's what got him. And folks, he was going to use that to get Eve as well. It took me down. I'm going to take her down with it. And Satan deceived Eve into questioning God's goodness and judgment. He got, her, he got her to question it. And the truth is, he's still doing this today. It was the greatest trick he ever did. And he's still doing it today in 2018. So what does it look like? Let's expose this trick right here and right now so we know what he's doing. Jesus said a line, and it's one of the most famous lines he ever said. And it's life-changing, and it's game-changing, and it's one that we as Christians hold dearly to because it's the foundation, really, of who the Savior is. He said this, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, not a single person, no one can come to the Father except through me. And when we read these words in the Scripture, when we proclaim these words from the stage, 
When we echo these words in our work or in the school, the world says back to us, surely you won't die. What does Jesus say? Oh, that idea is bigoted, laughable. It's closed-minded. You're smarter than to believe the Bible. You don't actually, you don't actually believe that, right? Because that's, no, you won't die. No, he's not actually the way. I mean, I know what he's trying to say, but surely you won't die. When we take the bait and we say no to Jesus, we put ourselves on the throne. I know better. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I don't need this crutch of religion. I am my own God. And Satan wins. Satan wins. Now, there is some good news. There is some good news. While Satan still dangerously roams this earth, he has already been defeated like Jesus. He is like a snake who has had his head cut off. And you know when a head, when a head comes off, that snake can still bite. And he is trying to take down as many people as he can in the process, but he has already been defeated by the cross of Jesus. Paul talks about this defeat on the cross, and he says this, in this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins were all, all of your sins were taken away. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? So if it's your first time here at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word up on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the first practical is this. Be aware of Satan's tactics. It's deception and it's temptation. And I don't know what that looks like in your life, but I bet you do. You know what those temptations are, and I bet you've fallen a couple of times, and it didn't work out the way that you thought it was going to work out. Don't be deceived. Don't be tempted. That is Satan doing his magic. Secondly, I would challenge you to put on the armor of God. Now, you're probably hearing this and you're going, what is that? That is a churchy you know, statement if I've ever heard one. This is right out of the Bible. Paul was, was, was trying to paint a picture of this idea that when you live and operate in this world that we do, we are surrounded by an unseen world. You are going to encounter Satan whether you want to or not. And he paints this picture that we have to be almost like a knight putting on a suit of armor. And he paints this metaphor, but it's the truth, and he says it like this. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you will be fully prepared. He continues, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So in this room, I feel like there are four groups of people probably. I think there are people in this room who have been Christians for a very, very long time. I feel like there are people in this room who have been Christians for a short period of time. I feel like there are people in this room who are just 
at this moment saying, maybe for the first time in my life, I'm going to say yes to Jesus. I'm going to turn my life over to this man who claims to be the Son of God, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to say yes to Jesus, perhaps even today. And then I think there's a group of people who have been burned by church, who have no experience with church, who have no experience with God, who are so far from God right now that you couldn't even measure it. But I believe that Satan whispers lies into every single one of our ears. And it's the same lies, no matter what group you're in. And I want to today, publicly from this stage, refute those lies so that you know the truth. You are loved by God. No matter what you've done, what's going on in your life, no matter what society tells you about who you are, you need to know the truth. God does love you. Your life matters. You may feel like it doesn't matter. You may have gotten so low that you thought of taking your own life, but you need to know, according to God and his word, your life matters. God can be trusted. And his word, the Bible, is true. Now this last one, don't put it up yet. This last one is the most important one of all. And this last one, Satan does not, he can't stand this one. But this is the biggest one of all that you need to understand. That Jesus is Lord. And Satan trembles at Jesus' name. The very mention of it, Satan runs because he knows that he has been defeated and God, and, and, and God has conquered death. Satan has been defeated. Death has been conquered. Jesus went to the cross and removed the sting of death. Satan's power is limited. He knows the end of the story and it doesn't look good for him because Jesus is Lord and he is God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you sent your son Jesus to this earth. I want to thank you, Lord, that Jesus finished the mission, that he made his way to the cross, that he echoed the words, it is finished. The debt has been paid. That because of him, Lord, anyone who says yes to him, we know that we are good. That God has forgiven us, God. I pray that right now that we would know the power of your son, Jesus' name. That we today, perhaps if we've never said yes to the name of Jesus, the name that Satan trembles before, Lord, that we would say yes, our lives would be changed. I pray that right now, whatever the lie may be, that Satan is whispering into our ears, God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would refute those lies, that we can know the truth. And the truth will set us free. I place all of these requests in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.